Welcome to the Wow Community Jokes. Welcome to our new series, Unstoppable, The Church Unleashed. We're still journeying through the book of Acts together, but as we've seen in recent weeks, there's, there's been this shift in focus. And now what Jesus told the disciples at the beginning of Acts, Acts 1 verse 8, he says, You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's finally happening. They're on the move. And what's forcing them to move? Persecution. Uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at the killing of Stephen. Last week, we took a moment to say goodbye to Stephen and lean into our grief. But tonight, we're going to look at how oftentimes it's these difficult seasons that are only just the beginning. Sometimes it takes a little suffering to get us to actually move, right? And as many of you are probably aware, I'm a fan of the TV show Friends. I've watched it for years, and I've been binge-watching it again throughout this current quarantine. And because I'm so familiar with it, I sometimes just love having it on in the background. And I know the jokes that are coming up, and I can laugh along, and there's something familiar and comfortable about it. But the other day, I was watching the one where Rachel quits. And she's been working at Central Perk as a waitress, and she's kind of getting fed up with it because she wants to pursue a job in fashion. And this was only supposed to be a temporary job. So Joey and Chandler say that what she needs is the fear. And she's like, what's the fear? And they tell her that, well, if you quit this job, then you'll have the fear. You'll have the motivation to go after the job that you really want. And I just thought, isn't that so true that it's oftentimes when we're afraid or when we've been forced to change for less than desirable reasons that it brings about and allows for these new expressions to emerge. It's sometimes when we're actually our most creative. Even right now, during a time when churches can't meet as they regularly do on the weekends, meet in our usual ways, we've been forced to get creative, we've been willing to be more flexible, and we've been meeting on Zoom, and we've been uh, able to meet over YouTube and Facebook and chat over text messaging and email, and it's been phenomenal to see how we've been able to respond and adapt to the changes that have been forced upon us. And right from the beginning of moving into Binbrook, I know it's been on Chris and Alex's heart and it's been on mine and Amanda's, that we've wanted to offer a marriage course. But for families with young kids, it's been tough to figure out the logistics of it. How do we get both spouses out of the house? Um, how do we offer babysitting? Because uh, with bedtimes and nap times, and it's just kind of been a logistical nightmare, if I'm being honest. But now, it's opened up the possibility of doing it online. Now that we're so familiar with, with doing work online and, and meeting together online, it's actually opened up the possibility and we're, we're actually going to have the opportunity starting May 28th to run a marriage course in the comfort of our own home where we can log in and gather together online via Zoom but actually have this intimate date night with our spouse where we can invest in our marriage and the relationship and, and uh, not have to worry about getting babysitting and organizing all of that and the added expenses. So it's oftentimes uh, through difficulties and through hardships and suffering that creative expressions can emerge and God can do new things. And I've lived through seasons of my own fear. Um, one time was August 29th, 2013. 
uh, when I was still serving as youth pastor in uh, White Rock, British Columbia. I went in at 8 p.m. or 8 a.m. and submitted my letter of resignation, that I was resigning my, my position as youth pastor. Then I went out and I had an all-day youth event. And when I got home at 10 p.m. that night, my wife dropped the pregnancy test in my lap, or several of them, and said, we're having a baby. Talk about fear. Like, that... Uh, Definitely was a moment where it felt like the carpet was pulled out from underneath me. But uh, while I didn't know it at that moment, it's been an incredible journey since because God ended up using that to bring us back to Ontario to be close to families. He ended up putting Binbrook on our hearts and this new expression of faith and church ha has emerged within our community and I wouldn't change it for the world. Um, so oftentimes it, it's through these seasons where there's some hardship, where there's some uncomfortability that God can do a new work and creative expressions can emerge. So tonight I want us to dig into Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 13 and we're going to look at how the persecution of the followers of Jesus actually forced them to leave their comforts and to become a missional movement. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 13. And again, if you need a Bible app on your smart device, go to bible.com slash app and it will download the correct one for you. But Acts chapter 8 verses 3 to 13, starting in verse 3. Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. So I want to ask you a question. The first question I want to ask is, would they be coming after you? It starts off in verse 3 with Saul going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. And what's interesting here is that if you're trying to stop a movement, who do you go after? You go after the full members, the ones who are engaged, the, the ones who, who are probably even leaders of the movement and are having the biggest impact, right? So it's striking to note how often, from the very beginning of the Jesus movement, it wasn't just men, but it was also women. I love that. 
because it's inclusive right from the beginning. You arrest the people who would be the problem. And who are they arresting? Both men and women. But the question remains for us, would they be coming after you as a follower of Jesus? Are, are you engaged in the mission of Jesus? Do you have a living and vibrant relationship with Jesus that people would be like, yeah, that you go after like Barb, go after Barb. Brian, definitely go after Brian. Get that guy. I, I love it. Would they be going after you? But it's also at this point now that we need to understand the context of what's happening in order to see the power within the text. So we need to understand the history of the hatred. Because there's a lot going on at play here that we don't quite uh, understand at first glance. Because you see, when we, when we talk about Samaria, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus says they're going to go to Samaria, so now they're in Samaria. But for them, for first century Jews, this meant a lot. There was a history of hatred. And that's because there was this history of hatred between them that went back generations and generations. And it ran really, really deep. In Luke 9, the Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus as he was coming through on his way to Jerusalem. And, and John actually asked, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? He was chomping at the bit. He was just getting ready. But Jesus rebuked them. They weren't considered Gentiles, but one scholar describes Samaritans as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They had this a similar heritage, a similar ancestry, which is part of the debate between them, but they didn't really belong. They were considered to have gone astray. And when they were refused a share in the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, they ended up building a rival temple over on their sacred hill or mountain. And in fact, we discover some of this in John's gospel in chapter four, where Jesus speaks with the woman at the well. And that's where we get our church name from. He tells her that the day is coming where it doesn't matter where they worship. What matters is that they've encountered him, that they've encountered Jesus. Because you see, it's all about encountering Jesus and being transformed by him, which we see happen in the story of the woman at the well. But there's another story that I want to draw your attention to at the moment. And it's one you're probably familiar with. It's found in Luke chapter 10, and it's probably best known as the Good Samaritan. But that's an oxymoron of the day. It, it would have been considered an impossibility to have a good Samaritan. Those were incompatible. They didn't exist. You see, we've often made the Good Samaritan a story about roadside assistance and helping people who are in trouble, right? But while that might be helpful, I believe it misses the point. And here's why. So I'm going to be leaning on an author who wrote the book, uh, What is the Bible? And who opened my eyes to just how brilliant and provocative this story truly is. Because you see, Jesus tells the story in response to a question. And the question is being asked by a lawyer or an expert in religious law. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a couple things. First, he's already a scripture 
expert, so he has an opinion. They often did back then. They had discussions about their opinion. So he's not new to the game. And whatever Jesus says, this man is going to have something to say in response. Second, when the lawyer asks about eternal life, he's not asking about the afterlife. This wasn't something that was really talked about uh, in Jesus' day, nor nor did Jesus really talk much about it. The focus for a first century Jew was this life, this time, here and now. So not life after death, but he's actually talking about life before death. In other words, he's essentially asking the question, how do I have the most best, fullest life right now that comes from living in harmony and peace and connection with God? So Jesus, in this story, responds like a good Jewish rabbi by asking the man what the Torah teaches. Now the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And it was believed to provide and give the answer on how to live the best life. Follow these rules and laws. So Jesus and this religious expert had this in common. So Jesus answers, so Jesus answers with a question and the man answers then from the Torah. And he says, well, we have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes. Do this and you'll live. End of story, right? No. We're not even at the Good Samaritan part yet. And you can tell something is coming. Something's brewing. Something's in the works. And see, when people say that the Bible is boring, they're like, I've tried to read it. It's just boring. Then what I often hear in that is that they haven't actually read it. They haven't engaged with it. Because when you enter into the stories, when you immerse yourself in them, in the depths, and the background, and the context, and the innuendos, the one thing you'll never be is bored when reading the Bible. So the text then says that the man wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Boom. There it is. That's the question that's been at the heart of this all along. The guy had an agenda. It was a setup. The guy knew the Torah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I know this. But where he didn't see eye to eye with Jesus, where they disagreed, was who classified as his neighbor. And this is where Jesus launches into the story about the Good Samaritan. A certain man was going to Jericho from Jerusalem and was beaten and left by the side of the road. A priest comes along and passes by on the other side. But wait, this is where Jesus is also being funny. Because if you understand the road that they're traveling, it's a trail that's just a few feet wide with a steep cliff on the other and a wall of rock on the other. So there is no other side. So when Jesus says that that the priest comes by and walks by on the other side, No, they would know that this man's been beaten and left on the road right smack dab in the middle. (laughs) But then a Levite, a religious leader, comes along and does the same thing. Third guy comes along. And the logical thing for Jesus to do now in this story would be to make the person a lawyer. This would make the point to the lawyer that your neighbor is anyone passing you by who's in need. But that's not where Jesus goes with the story. What Jesus does is say it's not a lawyer, but then a Samaritan comes along. 
Teachers of the law and the scripture experts hated Samaritans. So this would have been next to impossible for the lawyer to hear. A good Samaritan? That's impossible. But in Jesus' story, the Samaritan helps the man. And then Jesus finishes by asking, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Boom, mic drop. Do you see how brilliant and clever and subversive Jesus is here? It began as a setup for Jesus, but then Jesus turns the tables, leaving the man with the question, who was the neighbor? The answer, of course, is the Samaritan, but do you know how the guy actually answers? He says, the one who showed mercy. Now that might not seem like much, but here's what's actually at play. This man's hatred goes so deep that he can't even say the word Samaritan. He simply replies, the one who showed mercy. And that's Jesus' point. He says, that's your neighbor. That's who you're called to love. That's where eternal life is found in showing kindness to the one you hate, the one you despise, the one you wish didn't exist, the one whose name you can't even say. And you see, this movement of Jesus isn't just about roadside assistance. It isn't just about planting more churches. Jesus is calling us to something way bigger and higher and deeper and transcendent. Jesus is calling us to love like God loves, which means everybody. Even those you hate so much, you can't even say their name. And what's incredible is that through this persecution now happening in Acts, the good news of Jesus, the love of Jesus, is spreading to Samaria. So, so that's kind of this, this context that's happening underneath. And as they get to Samaria and as they're spreading the love of Jesus, people are being healed. People are being released from bondage. People are being restored by the power of Jesus. Miracles are happening and there was joy, great joy in the city. I find this incredible. In the midst of persecution, there's this wave of joy that's overcoming them. And we can experience that too. You can experience that too. How? By making Jesus known. That's our mission as a church, to make Jesus known. Why? Because as we do, as people encounter Jesus, we will witness lives being transformed, which in turn will transform our community. It will turn people toward hope. It will bring an overwhelming joy over our city. Now, I can already hear people saying, yeah, but Philip, if you read in the text, he was doing miracles and I can't do miracles, but this is where you're wrong. You are the miracle. You, you are the miracle. You have a story to share. You have a relationship with Jesus to share. And don't give me the typical, yeah, but my story isn't that exciting. Yeah, it is. People want to hear it. People want to know it. For someone who's down and out, for someone who's lost all hope, for someone who's still living in bondage, they're dying to know how to live a life of freedom, 
How did you do it? How do you continue to do it? How can they experience the joy that you have? And I know that so often we just, we're so used to it that we don't think our story is exciting, but for people who don't have the hope that we have, our story is everything. It points them to the hope and the person of Jesus Christ. I love the song our worship team did this week, Waymaker. Because Jesus is a way maker, a miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. This is who God is, and you are one of his miracles. Where has Jesus met you? What has Jesus saved you from, rescued from, released you from? How is your life different now that you have encountered Jesus? Jesus rescued me from from a path of utter destruction, from stupid decisions, from selfishness, from drunkenness, from relationship after relationship, from this me first way of living. And Jesus continues to help me live a life of loving my neighbor, even the ones I struggle to say their name. Jesus continues to bring people into my life to help me, to keep my eyes fixed on him, to help me be a loving husband to Amanda, to be a good dad to Landon and Kinsley. My mom, she was so relieved when I sold my motorbikes and she often will say, it's a miracle to think you're still alive. Yeah, it is. And I'm gonna use this miracle of life that I have to share the love of Jesus and the hope that I have in Jesus with others because it's simply too good to keep to myself. Do you realize the miracle that you have to show others is you? You are the miracle. Deb, you are the miracle. Trevor, you are the miracle. Renee, you are the miracle. As you share that with others, you too will get to witness miracles right before your eyes. And next week, we're going to dig into more of Simon's story, the, the magician or the sorcerer. But let me ask you this. Have you been transformed by Jesus or are you simply amazed by Jesus? It might seem like a slight nuance, but I think they're two very different things. You see, being amazed, it's passive. It's something you admire, but you can still kind of sit on the sidelines. Even in Samaria, Simon had been amazing people. The message writes, he had them eating out of the palm of his hands. But when Philip came preaching the good news of Jesus, they were transformed. It was no longer about being amazed, amazed by Simon's magic. They were being healed, renewed, restored. They were being transformed from the inside out. They were now engaged and participating in this new kingdom of Jesus. They were putting their trust in Jesus, believing in Jesus, and being baptized in the name of Jesus. But you see, sometimes like Simon, we get stuck with simply being amazed. We think, ah, that's good enough. Being amazed isn't a bad thing. I'm amazed by Jesus all the time, but it can't stop there. It has to go deeper. Following Jesus is a full immersion experience. Even Jesus in John chapter 2 attached little value to faith that was based on miracles alone. There's a saying that goes, what you win people with is what you win people to. In other words, if you're simply amazed, you're going to move on as soon as you're not impressed. As soon as something better, brighter, shinier comes along. But when you've been transformed by Jesus, 
you are all in. So during this time of home isolation and quarantine, and while we're unable to gather together in person on Saturdays, let me encourage you to continue to be the church. Continue to make Jesus known in your families and neighborhoods and digital circles. Continue to share the miracle that he's done in your life. And because when you've become transformed by Jesus, you are unstoppable. I truly believe it. You are the miracle. Share what Jesus has done in your life. Make him known. And you will see miracles happen before your very eyes. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the work that you've done and that you're doing in and through each of our lives. I pray that tonight that you will remind us of the miracles that are represented in each of our lives. I pray that we would be transformed by your spirit and that we would not hold anything back from you as we seek to live for you. Jesus, help us to continue to be the church in our communities and to make your name known so that lives will continue to be transformed for your glory. May we feel your presence in the midst of this physical distancing and may we experience your peace and your joy as we continue to see you move. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for spending time with us this weekend. Be sure to check out the wellbinbrook.com slash marriage for more information on the marriage course coming up on Thursday, May 28th, starting at 8 p.m. Share uh, that with your, your friends and family, anyone who wants to spend some time to invest in their relationship. And if you're on YouTube, please like and share our video, subscribe, and on Facebook, like and share as well. Um, Let's continue to make Jesus known so that lives and our community will be transformed. Enjoy the rest of your long weekend and may the grace and peace of Jesus be with you, friends. Amen.